Hello and welcome to the Sweet Podcast with me, Mitchell Willis, and him, Michael Hall. Good afternoon. How are you? Yeah, I'm alright. I'm better than you by the sound of things. Yeah, I'm, I'm struggling. I don't know whether it's the aftermath of the weekend or a little bit of man flu. I think it might have something to do with how loud you were shouting on Sunday during the uh, the 90 minutes at Villa Park. Yeah, there was, um, there was a little bit of excitement, it's fair to say. I think, you know, we've both had a big weekend, haven't we? Let's we face have. It. Yeah, we spent the weekend together, didn't we? Uh, Travelled down to London to yes. watch Southampton at Fulham, which was naturally shite, and <laughs> then went to Birmingham, and the weekend took an upturn, didn't it? It did indeed in the Second City derby, but as well as those... It was uh, a turn-up for the books at Wembley with a dominant Spurs performance, some movement down the bottom with big wins aplenty, much to your pleasure. Shush. And the t- top two impressing as ever, a certain Manchester club having a nightmare also. As well as that, though, we've got the Championship Roundup. We catch up with our Lisbon Lions. And, of course, this week sees the return of the domestic quiz. So you're in the hot seat. Brilliant. I've prepared the questions. And... Um, Part of me feels like we should maybe do a fantasy league update as well. Uh, I think we've still... Have we got any fixtures left before the end of the month? I'm not sure we have, have we? Okay, yeah. Begrudgingly, we'll do an FPL update then. But for now, there's only one place to start, and that is at our national stadium, where Spurs won 3-1 against Chelsea. Yeah, and I'm not sure about you, but I didn't really see this coming. I We, we spoke about this, didn't we, when we previewed the game yeah. on Thursday, and I was very confident that there wasn't going to be a draw in this game. I thought that somebody would win it. And without saying it, I think it was pretty obvious that we both thought Chelsea would probably do what was needed in this game. But Tottenham, from minute one, just absolutely dominated them, didn't they? Yeah, I think the, the attacking players in particular were superb. You know, they exploited the gaps that the Chelsea fullbacks left when they pushed forward. And, you know, we'll get onto it in a second, but they've put a lot of pressure on Jorginho in the middle of the park as well. Uh, I think Pochettino got his tactics spot on with this one. Um, we can't necessarily say that every single week about Spurs, but I think as well as the fact that they were fantastic, the tactics were right. You know, Chelsea were as bad as they probably will be all season, and I think as a result, it was just an inevitable kind of foregone conclusion to the game. And to be honest with you, you couldn't really argue. Spurs were, I don't know, four up at halftime, and and they just looked dominant, and everything went their way. Everything went against Chelsea, but massive credit to Spurs because they've been a little bit ropey throughout this season and they've struggled to get going particularly at home as well they've, they've been fantastic away at times but I think with this with the pressure on them you know with with Chelsea obviously still desperate to keep a title challenge on going as well it was a huge result it was and Tottenham started like they wanted to go on didn't they the uh, the first goal was a great ball in from Ericsson yeah. it's a good header from Dele Alli and um, I don't think Kepa had any chance with that he then made a couple of really good saves and the second goal kind of epitomised how easy an afternoon it was for Tottenham because Chelsea defenders backed off David Luiz turned his back and I don't think anyone expected the shot from Harry Kane to go quite so close to the goalkeeper without him even diving for it it was such a strange one I, we, we were watching it in a pub in, in Fulham after the, the game and everyone was kind of looking around thinking did that take a big deflection why has the keeper been wrong sighted but it wasn't that at all was it it was just the fact that Kane was opportunistic he hit it early and Kepa didn't have the wherewithal to get down to it that quickly I, And I, I think the difficulty was is that the, the keeper would have thought the defenders are blocking it yeah. the defenders thought that's fine, it can just go through. And it was just one of those where, he, you know, you could hit that 100 times and it probably would be blocked or saved. And, it, yeah, it just typified Chelsea's day, I think. But when you consider the attention to detail that Sarri puts into preparing his teams, he would have been furious, especially at half-time, because Tottenham at that stage were pretty much out of sight. I know that, obviously, they were only 2-0 up at that stage, but the, the game was pretty much done and dusted. The... The midfield battle was won. I know that Tottenham set up slightly differently in, in a bit of a festive Christmas tree formation. Yep. They played with three defensive midfield, not not three defensive midfielders, but three holding midfielders, didn't they? And it was almost like when one of them went, two of them stayed. And that just offered more protection for their defenders. But actually, I don't really think they needed it. No, they didn't. You know, Chelsea Chelsea were dreadful, really, by by, by their own standards. And, you know, I, I think Sarri was bang on when he said he didn't like anyone's performances because you couldn't pinpoint anybody that had a good game. And 
I think you know unfortunately if you're in those circumstances that's just you know that's the way it's going to go you're going to lose and you could probably get away with two or three players not playing very well and you know mentioned Jorginho there's that slight conundrum that we've referenced a few times and it's difficult to look past what happens with him and Kante you know Kante has been consistently one of the best players in the Premier League for the last three seasons one of the best players in the world for the last few seasons and he's now playing a different role and you almost you know, I, I understand why Jorginho's come in uh, I understand why Sarri's brought him in but you've got a player who is the best player in that position of any team in the world and you've decided to bring someone else in instead and, and I know Kante's got quality and he can do another job but you do wonder if on another day on Saturday some of the goals are prevented some of the opportunities are prevented Spurs don't get as much of a foothold in the game if Kante's playing the role that we know and love him in? I think we we talked about it a lot earlier in the season, didn't we? Because it, it seemed like a natural switch for Kante. He was moved a little bit further forward and he was getting into positions, he was scoring goals, he was creating chances. And I don't think we've really considered it because we haven't had to. Chelsea have gone unbeaten yeah. up to this point and therefore I don't think that there's any need to really worry too much as a Chelsea fan. I think that it's a blip. It's a game where probably six out of the starting 11 weren't up to speed from from minute one and it looked like the international break had really taken its toll on the Chelsea players rather than the Spurs players I agree with you I think that that Kante probably does work better in his natural position um but you can't argue with the fact that they have gone however many games unbeaten and and yes they've been undone by a title rival but I don't think that Sarri is going to rip up the rule book and change what he's doing tactically it may just be that he decides to give Jorginho would go a little bit further forward. I mean, Jorginho's had the most passes out of any player in the Premier League up until this weekend. He's been like a metronome when he's got on the ball and he's dictated the pace of Chelsea's attacks, which I don't think Kante does. Kante breaks the ball up yeah, and, exactly. and, and, and gets rid of it. And whether Sarri decides to play them a little bit closer together in the next game, it's difficult to say. But Tottenham are expansive. They like to get the ball out wide quickly. They play with a lot of pace. And I think that's, that Sarri and Chelsea possibly just underestimated, underestimated them on Saturday. There's a little bit of controversy as well, wasn't there, early on when uh, Hazard went down under a challenge from everyone's favourite action man, Juan Foyth. Uh, he's absolutely everywhere, both positive and negative. This one was a massive negative for, for me. And I said at the time it should have been a penalty. Um, obviously, he then goes on to nearly score with a flick of the heel at the other end. But... Yeah, as I say, I don't know how that's not given as a penalty because he's gone straight through the back of him. Hazard can't anticipate any contact from that because he's directly behind him. So as soon as he gets the touch, obviously he falls down because it's a relatively heavy touch. Yeah, it's a clumsy tackle and it's in a position where you probably don't have to do that either. There were enough covering defenders who, even if Hazard had taken the shot on, he would have had to really place it in, yeah. a, in in an area that neither Lloris or any of the other defenders would have been able to block and I think that Pochettino will want to stick with Foyth at the moment because obviously you've got Toby Alderweireld there and I know that, uh, that Jan Vertonghen is coming back into full training but I think that Foyth had a real turnaround in fortunes in that game away at Palace recently and the the from Pochettino's point of view, he'll want him to try and build that confidence up after what happened to him in his first Premier League game yep. away at Wolves. The difficulty that you've got is if he's still prepared to make rush challenges against players like that, then it doesn't really feel like he's learning the defensive side of the game that he needs to learn. And Tottenham have got tricky players. You would have thought that in training that Pochettino would put him up against the likes of Ali and Eriksen, Son, players who like to cut inside and aren't necessarily keen to shoot first time when the ball comes to them, really to try and build his confidence up but he just looked like a, a fish out of water against Hazard on Saturday again I reckon Pochettino puts him up front in training I think he likes him <laughs> a lot I think he puts him up top and gets him to bag who knows it's the best Spurs performance of the season though without a doubt um, you know aside from the fact that Chelsea weren't very good um, that should be a massive confidence builder for them as a, as a squad and that's coming up against a tough run as well with Arsenal twice in a matter of weeks and um, you know that that Christmas period is going to be tricky for them because I think they are still probably one or two injuries away from a, a real struggle. You know, if if Kane goes, for instance, if Eriksen goes, Son as well, he was fantastic this weekend, and you know his goal was was a great goal. Probably not the best goal this weekend, but we'll get onto that later. Um, but you know he's again much like last season, he's so crucial and vital to the way that they play. 
And I think they really did miss him at the start of the season when he was gone. They do, and naturally you're going to miss your best players. I think that it's something that we talked about early on, that by not strengthening that squad, they were putting themselves at risk, which the likes of Chelsea, Liverpool, Manchester City, by all strengthening substantially in the summer, will be trying to avoid. And, and, and that's the difficulty with Tottenham. We can sit here and talk about how brilliant they are, Tottenham Cows come home, how great tactically Pochettino is, how versatile Harry Kane can be, and, and, and all these great things. But it will still come down to the fact that if their squad can't cope with the busy festive period, and it is a cliche, but if they can't compete with the other teams at that stage, then naturally they're not going to win anything. And I think that's why the jury's probably still out at this stage. Let's move away from North West London and move down to fashionable West London. Fulham, three, Southampton, two. As we said, we were there and it was not very enjoyable for some of us. No, I didn't didn't really enjoy any of this game. I think <laughs> the, the, the first sort of 15 minutes going 1-0 up was great, but the minute we scored, it was that sense of right now we've got to try and sit on a lead, which we are so, so bad at. And naturally, it hurts even more when you lose a game when you've been ahead. And that's the... The difficulty being a Southampton fan at the moment, the lack of expectation is, is is there for all to see. And I think the confidence that's running through the players is probably at an all-time low. Mark Hughes is now at a stage where he's got the worst Premier League uh, win rate of any Southampton manager in, Three out of 21. in history. Yeah, which when you consider how poor Pellegrino was and when you consider how poor the players were at times under Claude Puel as well, um, Hughes has done very well to take it to another level. And that's the... The honest opinion, I know that I'm I'm not his biggest fan and, and I think that's probably clear to see, but I don't understand why the players' confidence seems to have gone so low given how they all were towards the end of last season. Am I right in thinking that Cedric said even when they went 1-0 up he thought they might still lose? Yeah, I mean, right? it's a comment that's probably been twisted a little bit by the press and I think the, the interview was done with Jacob Steinberg in The Guardian and he's generally somebody that you can rely on to, yeah. to report the way that things are said but I think it was more a case of Cedric was commenting on the mental fragility that we seem to have as a side and it wasn't necessarily about what happened on Saturday, it was more about what's happened over the last two or three months and the fact that we aren't able to hold on to leads and it was probably more of a general comment that the feeling amongst the squad isn't one of when we go one goal ahead or when we go ahead in a game, we're, we're going to be able to hold on to it. It's more one of we're going to have to probably try and batten down the hatches and try and stop the other team from scoring now. And unfortunately, that's probably not the approach that you need in the Premier League. I think that as a Southampton player, if you go one and up in a game away at the team that's conceded the most goals in the Premier League, the team that are rock bottom and considerably behind the teams around them you should press on and go for the second and third goals and as much as Southampton did that it was two or three mistakes which let Fulham back into the game yeah you're absolutely right I think that is the frustrating thing you know Southampton for large periods of the game were if not the better side certainly in it and you know definitely until they conceded they took the lead through Armstrong who was lively and a threat whilst on the pitch and took both goals very well the second was was an unreal finish but you know, as we say, it's so easy to break Southampton down. You know that first goal, none more, more so than any of the others. They were just carved open by nothing particularly special. And when you've got someone like Mitrovic, who's just stood in the middle of the six-yard box waiting for the header, you're going to get punished. And I think the defence overall was disjointed. The fullbacks gave very little going forward, as well as really having too much of an impact in defence as well. Wesley Hoot had a a, a shocker. Um, you know, giving the ball away for that third was probably the worst thing that happened on the pitch for me. Um, you know, the marking on the first two as well. Overall, it was just, yeah, it was just sloppy, and you know, you leave yourself open to to get beaten by absolutely anybody on that on those days. And that's the frustrating thing is when you do go into the lead in in, in a game, naturally you expect to come under some pressure. You're at home, you're against a team who's got a new manager, and. The the difficulty is for the first goal that they score, there's three Southampton defenders in the box, there's one Fulham player and Mitrovic probably only has to move one or two yards to get to the yep. ball and it's an easy header across McCarthy who, when I saw it back, I actually think that he could do better with that. I think he's very flat-footed as well. I think if he's on his toes, then he's got a much better opportunity of getting to that ball and that's that's a worry because he's probably been one of our more positive performers this season. The second goal from Schürrle is, is both fullbacks switch off. Cedric Suarez allows... Ryan Sessegnon to go past him far too easily. Gabby Adini tries to 
get involved. But unfortunately, when you play a striker in an unnatural position, he doesn't necessarily have the natural ability to defend properly. And, and Matt Target switched off, like I say, on the, on, on the other post. And it was a really simple finish. And the third goal, like you say, Wesley Hoot has done the criminal thing as a defender you put the ball out of the play you put the ball out of play you allow yourselves to regroup you get men back behind the ball and that's one way to go again at that point it's two all silence and we're in the ascendancy Fulham probably had one chance in the second half maybe in fact two because McCarthy made that amazing yeah. save from Mitrovic but as a team were disjointed there's no link between the defenders and the attackers and we were pulled all over the place and I still can't get my head around why Mark Hughes hasn't been sacked Yes, we'll get onto that shortly. But uh, we have to talk about Fulham. You know, Claudio and Ranieri's come in. Um, and at times, they, they, they look good. You know, you've got Mitrovic who makes life difficult for anyone. Uh, Sessegnon and Schurla pose a threat from, from out wide. And I think that that's what Fulham need to do. Just get back to basics. You know, build a, as much of a solid defence as they can do. And, and make the most of the players they've got in front of them. Um, Oddly, Callum Chambers played centre midfield and actually looked relatively assured and controlled. And you've got someone like Cyrus Christie who had a good game and, and again looked um, fairly consistent. You know, he didn't really give too much away. And I think that it's that back four that obviously Ranieri will need to sort out. And you know, we we, we spoke about it the weekend. He's known as the the Tinkerman, but that was quite a quite a while ago. You know, you look at what he did at Leicester; it was all built around playing the same team or certainly the same style every week and, and that's probably just what he needs to do at Fulham he's got the players to do it they do have enough quality within the squad to stay up and ultimately that result is huge for them you know they can count themselves lucky that Southampton didn't manage to get more out of the game because they were good value for a draw but as you say Southampton didn't do themselves any favours Mark Hughes is still there you know you spent most of Saturday evening checking social media to see whether he'd gone. Yeah. And we're now on Tuesday. You've got a game this evening and he's still there. Yeah, and I'm going tonight to Leicester. I'm, I'm going to go... I don't really know Glutton why. I know. I, I, I've seen three Southampton games so far this season in which we've conceded um, 11 goals. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I've got absolutely no expectations tonight away at Leicester. I mean, it was very similar in the, in the round before this when we were away at Everton I didn't expect us to get anything there so you never know but it's just a really weird one that he's still there and, and going back to what you were saying about Fulham obviously clubs will look now at what they've done they were the first to do it and it's obviously had an immediate impact there not out of the relegation zone yet but what they are now is that they are they're on the same points as the other teams around yep. them and, and straight away they will probably have more confidence than any other team in the bottom six maybe Huddersfield aside Let's look up and let's look up at the leaders, Manchester City, who won four nil at West Ham, and you know they're simply too good for West Ham. It's again another difficult week to talk about Manchester City. There's not a huge amount to say. They took the chances, they got the job done. Um, I, I agree with Pep; they probably weren't at their best as well, which kind of says a lot. And you know, West Ham had their moments, but realistically, only ever going to go one way. It's far too easy for Manchester City at times. They West Ham would win the ball. They just seem to lose it again, and that's what Manchester City give you. You know, they're they're just absolutely everywhere as well. And you've got someone like David Silva who seems to be on the ball every fifth touch, just starting it over again, getting them going. And I was thinking while I was watching it, it's, it's mad that he's still effectively fairly underrated as a Premier League player, and he's been unbelievable throughout his whole Manchester City career. Yeah, I mean, I spoken to Manchester City fans relatively recently when I went to watch Southampton there and they they always look for him as the first name on the team sheet yep. and that's before the likes of Aguero that's the four before the likes of De Bruyne they want Silva to be playing because they know the way that he makes that team tick and the, the issue on Saturday was the fact that West Ham conceded too early on and straight away it just kills it as a contest the likelihood of Manchester City ever conceding three goals is is pretty slim I think it probably happened on a couple of occasions last year and that was maybe both games against Liverpool yep. a apart from that you're going to struggle to trouble them and straight away the confidence of, of all of those West Ham players on Saturday just, just took a massive knock and you looked at how frustrated the likes of Arnautovic was getting Zabaleta was getting the absolute run around and I think Cresswell was the other side as well and, and the problem that West Ham had is they tried to play a relatively high line initially and then straight away by conceding those goals they dropped deeper and the the ability within that Manchester City midfield and the runs that those forward players make it's almost impossible to defend against and Guardiola was rightly purring afterwards because to have a performance 
of that ilk in the game after the international break is something that you don't associate with top sides. Normally, you would expect them to win, but you wouldn't expect them to win as comfortably as that. And it just shows, for me, how far they are in front of any other team in the Premier League. Yeah, you're right. You know, they are a lot quicker. They're much better technically and they can just control the game however they wish, whether they're away from home or at home. And I think even coming up against the top sides now, they're starting to do that a little bit more and they're starting to... I think they're becoming much less fearless as well. Uh, much more fearless, sorry. And I think as a result, they're they're going for the jugular, even with the bigger teams as well. And I think, you know, it's going to be interesting watching them against those sides as we go through the season because it, it, it it's going to be difficult to keep winning 4-0 and then come up against a real challenge and, and turn it round and have to dig in. And potentially there's a little bit of complacency that could slip in there. I'm not really sure whether that will. I'm not sure whether Pep will let that happen and whether the players will let that happen. But I think, you know, you saw West Ham... When they were 2 not down, they came out, they had a go. They had no choice but to come and do that. And at times, you would think Man- Manchester City could crumble a- a- against that, but they didn't. And they just keep creating the chances and they can catch teams on the break as well as playing them at their own game as well with the possession control. But I think for Manchester City going forward, that is the real intrigue for me as to how they approach those games after winning kind of three or four on the bounce without conceding, scoring four or five goals. Yeah, a quick word on West Ham because obviously it takes two teams to tango and they were obviously the the side in this that, that basically made up the numbers. I thought it was an interesting interview with Mikhail Antonio after the game who came out and basically said, I don't think we deserve to lose 4-0, we created chances. I disagree with him. I think they probably deserve to lose at least 4-0 if not more. And <laughs> the, the, the only real chances that they had were the save that Edison made I think it was from Antonio yeah. and then I think he hit the post as well or somebody else hit the post towards the end and if you look at the amount of chances that Manchester City created throughout I think that you have to just sometimes hold your hands up and say that you were beaten by the better side regroup go again in a different fixture I think we're both of the opinion that West Ham will be absolutely fine yeah. and um, I I don't think they'll be anywhere near relegation come the end of the season I think that they've come up against one of the best teams in Europe at the moment and I'm really looking forward to see how Manchester City get on away at Lyon this week in the Champions League because you would have thought they probably owe them one they're they're the only team that's beaten them so far this season and as a result you would have thought Pep will be wanting to get their own back I suspect they'll batter them but we shall see Liverpool have also got a French team PSG and they played Watford this weekend beating 3-0 and it was always going to be a test for Liverpool this I think certainly more so than, than, than West Ham in their own way but um you know they had their moments as well Watford very early on and there's a fine margin to have one chalked off early on for offside and then creating a few other chances too and it was Delefeu's at the heart of things and really it took until half time for Liverpool to, to get into it and Watford again came out strong but that front three for Liverpool they're starting to click more and more and they really shone and made the difference in this one they did and I think the most important thing from a Liverpool point of view is that Salah's getting back amongst the goals yeah. and a lot of people did, didn't really consider that he would be able to replicate his form from last season I don't think that he is by any means but if he has a 20 goal season this season then that will be an incredible contribution from your first two years in English football and at the rate he's going you wouldn't put it past him I think another great thing from a Liverpool point of view is the fact that Firmino got on the score sheet he's gone I think nine games without a goal which for any Premier League striker is massive and it just shows the strength and depth that they've got in goal scoring terms in that team Trent Alexander-Arnold with a wonderful free kick and we didn't expect anything else from him. We've seen him do it before and I think that Liverpool will continue to push Manchester City. That's that's clear. I think the difficulty from their point of view is going to be trying to break sides down who are a little bit more resolute than Watford. Watford were happy to go at Liverpool in this game and yeah. by doing so, you are naturally going to leave yourself open. Liverpool played on the counter at times. They pressed high as well and... and the danger from a Watford point of view is that if you commit too many players upfield, then the likelihood of you getting caught on the break is very, very severe given the amount of pace that's in that Liverpool side. I think that Liverpool, when they come up against a side who will sit in with two banks of four, may struggle a bit to break them down away from home because at Anfield, you've got the crowd behind you, you know exactly where you are in the pitch and it's it's a really intriguing way to watch them this season because for them to keep pace with Manchester City you would have thought they're going to have to win at least sort of 75% of their games 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you could see how happy Klopp was with the win. He knew they were made to work hard for it, uh, but obviously in a, in a different way to that. You know, Watford did have their chances, and um, yeah, he, he was over the moon, and I'm sure that the uh, contributing factor to that as well would have been the fact they went down to 10 men. Uh, Jordan Henderson was, was off. He was gone gone and, and showered before the card was even out. I he think. was, you're right. Uh, rightly so, but... You know, ultimately with Watford, I think like like West Ham before, they'll be beating teams in and around them, certainly below them. And I think they've obviously, I don't know whether they've given Gracia a new contract now, or it's certainly in it's in the offing process, yeah. isn't yeah. it? So you know, he's clearly doing something right. And considering the previous approach from the owners, you know, they're letting managers go almost on a season basis, and now they're looking to build something with with one person. So. As much as they were good on Saturday and against a side with more quality and firepower, I think with a little bit more luck going their way on another day and, and certainly beating those sides around them, they'll be absolutely fine and you know should be top 10. Absolutely right. Another team who may well be top 10 come the end of the season is Bournemouth. They've had an absolute flyer to the season. And you'd probably say on another day, they would have got something out of the game against Arsenal. Obviously, Arsenal came away with a 2-1 victory and it's fine margins for them. And... I think Bournemouth have obviously lost a few games on the bounce now and you, you could have seen them really pushing the top four at this stage because actually the games where they have lost, they've not been by many. Yeah, I, I was impressed with the way that Eddie Howe came out and dealt with some of the questions given the fact that they're having a, a poor run of form. You know, he did point to the fact it was fine margins in this game, also the Manchester United game at home as well. And, you know, those games on another day, they, they win both of those and they're against sides that are just above them. So that would make a huge, huge difference. And, you know, with this one, they missed out on a goal for David Brooks, which is possibly the wrong decision to disallow it. Uh, they also score an own goal, which was as a, a, a good a, an own goal as you're ever going to see. What a finish. Yeah, I I haven't seen an own goal scored like that for a long time. And Jefferson Lerma is pretty capable of, of long-distance strikes, as we saw in the second half. And I think that he will be looking to get on the score sheet for Bournemouth very quickly to try and exorcise the demons of that one on Sunday. But I think that Lucas Torreira played a a real part in this game on Sunday. He he ran the show for Arsenal and I was quite surprised that he got withdrawn for Gwenduzi towards the end of the game. Maybe he had a lot of travel over the international period. Maybe it was just the fact that, that he was a little bit leggy after after so many games in a short space of time. Played at the Emirates against Brazil. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and maybe played somewhere else yeah, as well. Possibly. Who knows? Um, but yeah, I, I think you look at the way that Arsenal have really changed this season under Emery and, and there's been a massive mental shift in the way that they've dealt with games and conceding that goal the last second of the, the, the first half could have changed everything but the way that they came out in the second half they looked bright and I think they probably got a deserved lead. Bournemouth probably deserved an equaliser in the last 15 minutes or so because they did push Arsenal hard but it's games like this that Arsene Wenger wasn't able to win and to be keeping pace with the top three or four at this stage will be far more than any Arsenal fan could have dreamed for at this stage of the season. Yeah, it's, it, it just shows so much progress. You know, They are looking much more solid. Uh, they've got two fairly consistent strikers, one of which and Aubameyang got the winner. And ultimately, they've, they've got a bigger and better squad. You know, Mesut Ozil was on the bench and much ado about nothing for me, really. They were up against the side that were, were going to be physical and put them under pressure and the system they played needed two solid midfielders to allow the wing backs to push forward and, and get and get into the, the opposite half and I think it also allowed them to play three centre halves. None of them spectacular in their own right, but all complementing each other. And I think if you look at Meza Ozil, he's very much a luxury player at times and I don't think this suited him. I think the home games against the weaker opposition rather than the battles away from home where the, the big, strong teams are, are the games where you should pick them. And ultimately, Arsenal now have a few different ways of playing and they didn't have that under Wenger, certainly for the last few years. And even back in the day when they were the, at their successful best, they generally just came to dominate teams and they did that through pace and strength um, and also just having that firepower up top. And they're showing that a little bit more now. And they're obviously showing that they've got two or three different ways to play. They are indeed. Before we go to a break, just want to say what a great goal by Josh King that was. Yes. I think that you often lose those goals when, when teams get beat. But it was um, yeah, it was a joy to behold. And uh, Bournemouth will be hoping for many more of those come the end of the season. 
they will indeed join us after this short break where we're going to take a little trip to the championship should have gone to Specsavers, Charlie, because I'll tell you what, he's not offside. Well, he's absolutely bang in line, not offside. Well, maybe you should go also then, Jeff, because uh, you couldn't see driving home the other night because you you don't even wear your glasses in, in uh, TV in case you get you get slagged off. So you just uh, you just stick to Specsavers and I'll do the game. Welcome back to part two of the Sweep podcast, and we are taking that trip to the championship, and we'll start from the beginning and then get on to Alan Hutton at the end, which is why we're all here, let's face it. But Friday night <laughs> saw West Brom travel to Ipswich, and they grabbed a 2-1 win to move them up to second, but they were bumped down following wins for Leeds and Middlesbrough. Borough sits second now, having just lost two games all season, less than anyone else, and other than oddly... Nottingham Forest, who've had more draws than anyone else, which means they're just outside the playoffs. They did win on Saturday, though, beating Hull away from home 2-0. And the weekend also saw a decent win for Derby County, beating Sheffield Wednesday 2-1 away from home, while Sheffield United, who also occupy the playoff places, thought they'd nicked a late winner in the South Yorkshire Derby with Rotherham, only to be pegged back in the 92nd minute to draw 2 all. And then down at the bottom, as well as those losses for Hull Ipswich, it was a draw central for those above them. Millwall and Bolton played out a one-all at the Den, whilst Wigan and Reading ended goalless at the DW. Not far above the chasing pack, you've then got lacklustre Stoke City, who drew two-all at the Bet365 with QPR. And that draw inflicted by, wait for it, an Angel Rangel double, unsurprisingly the first double of his career. Have you seen the video during the rounds of Steve McLaren's reaction? No. Oh, it's glorious. He, um, the camera pans to him, sat on the on the bench with one of his coaching staff, and he mouths a couple of swear words right. and basically says, "What the fuck was he doing up there? <laughs> for which goal? Uh, for the first goal." Right. And he genuinely looks furious. Okay. And one of his players has just scored for him. So Steve's got standards, clearly. Absolutely. And Stoke have got standards too. They are unbeaten in the last five now, but she can't seem to string together a few wins. It's mainly all draws. Well, then on Sunday, there was that small matter of the second City derby. And this one will live long in the memory and will also now be known as the Scottish Cafu Day. It was such a weird game, though, wasn't it? We, yeah, it was. We, we got in there both very hungover, yeah. and uh, we had two lads behind us who... The loudest, oh most God. obnoxious Aston Villa fans. I've, I've never wanted to just ask someone to be quiet for five minutes, but... I would have rather sat in the away end at that point. That's, <laughs> that's how bad it was. But then the game really ignited, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, like we say, we were poor for the first half an hour and deservedly fell behind when Lukas Shukovic scored the opener for Birmingham. And really, they should have doubled the lead when Shea Adams hit the post not long after. And that seemed to be the turning point for Villa. Um, Villa took the lead before half-time, thanks to two delightful balls in from Albert Odoma that were lapped up by Jonathan Codger first and Jack Grealish, who was tearful when he scored for his boiled club against their better rivals and then you've got Tammy Abraham bagging from the penalty spot and it all seemed plain sailing then really the the Olays came out very early on and Birmingham actually pulled one back and it, it looked to get a little bit nervy again until the moment where Alan Hutton had an injection of pace got to the ball first about on the halfway line and just kept going and going and going and then the rarely used left foot was implemented to dispatch a tidy finish and to just cue unbelievable scenes. I was virtually speechless. It's it's definitely up there, if not my happiest moment in football, because nobody saw that coming. And, and obviously the occasion as well. He deserved that more than absolutely anybody in, in a Villa shirt. The, the reaction in the, in the stadium was one of bewilderment I think that the majority of the fans in there didn't know what to do because they just weren't expecting it and we were both sort of stood there agog open mouth wondering what had just happened and then they showed the replay on the big screen in the in the ground and again everyone was just looking at each other like what what's what's Alan Hutton just done and uh, I think if that's not the peak moment of his football career then I'd love to know what is I mean, everything he said after the game has, has been fantastic. You know, he's obviously absolutely buzzing with it. And as for the club, you know, we were talking earlier about Villa's social media has lapped it up over the last couple of days. We've had, uh, it's it's all been about Alan Hutton, really. He had uh, a, a John McGinn uh, goal of the season against Sheffield Wednesday, and then it was just him, hold my beer. <laughs> um, 
and then that was followed up with uh, a, a, some some mocking of Birmingham as well, naturally. And and the city very much was Villas this weekend, and the win moves us up to eighth. Uh, it's an opportunity to leapfrog Forest on Wednesday night, ahead of two huge away games against Borough and West Brom, and that could really that could define all of our seasons. You know, if we were to win, continue the winning run and get wins there, and and at least stop them from 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 beating us. Um, that could be huge. We could be in the playoffs by the end of next week. Could be the turning point for Aston Villa. And talking of turning points, we're going to give you our second update on Sporting Lisbon. Now, there was league games obviously in England this weekend, but in Portugal, it was the Premier Cup competition, which is known over there as the Taca de Portugal. And last year, Sporting got to the final and lost. But this year, they started their hopeful trip back there with a comfortable 4-1 victory over Lusitano from the third division and uh, that puts them through to the next round guess who scored that'll be big Baz Dost he did yeah he continued his ridiculous scoring record to maintain his one-in-one ratio he got two alongside one apiece for Bruno Fernandes and Abdoulaye Diaby a trip to Carabag in the Europa League this week and then Rio Ave away on Monday realistically a draw in Azerbaijan should probably put Sporting through to the next round um, if they get the win then that will absolutely guarantee it so stick with us for more updates from the beautiful Lisbon next week up the Lions join us after this short break where we are going to tackle the rest of the Premier League Simon goes down in a manner that seems impossible if I tug your jumper now let's try it oh no you didn't fall over that's incredible um, confusing for all certainly for myself I thought it was bizarre Welcome back to the third part of this week's Sweeper podcast and as Mitch said before the break we are going to recap the Premier League and there's only really one place to start and that's in the black country where Wolves went down 0-2 to those Terriers. They did indeed, a brilliant away win for Huddersfield and an early goal uh, set themselves up not to lose you would think from there and following Moy's strike they just kept creating chances and got their reward later in the game when the impressive Aaron Moy again doubles the lead and it's worth noting that Steve Mounier had a really good game in in this and he looked like a proper presence up front he and did. it's the first time in a long time for Huddersfield that they've looked this good and it's weird because they've got such a good record at Molyneux a couple of our friends were at the game yesterday and they I, I don't know whether you were listening to it in the car on the way back from Birmingham but I I had it on in my car and they were saying that Huddersfield have got such a good record there and you just wonder if that gives players a little bit of a bounce before the game because they looked completely different when I watched this back to games previously in the season I know that they've done well recently but they they look like the team that came up from the championship and there was confidence there the the opener from Moy was a great finish and like you say the the likes of Billing and Pritchard in the midfield really impressed as well and Huddersfield fans a few weeks ago were, were almost resigned to the fact that their team were already down and, and now they're up in th- 14th or 15th yeah. position and it just turns everything on its head one game. It does indeed, you know, they've got those players standing out now and I think certainly at the start of the season there wasn't really anyone you could hang your hat on and obviously if Mounier is having a, a great game and, and not scoring as long as he's doing something for the team that's creating chances for everyone else as well that's huge for them um, you know you've got someone like Billing who's coming for a hell of a lot of praise recently and even been linked with moves away to, to some of the top clubs in the league and I, I wonder does he have enough in your opinion to move up through the league if the right club comes in um, not yet for me I, I think that you've got to do it over a substantial period of time and to, to have two or three good games in 13 isn't isn't good enough I don't think that a bigger side would want to take a punt on somebody at that age yet because I think that there's probably a lot more out there that you could spend your money on and, and almost not guarantee success but probably give give yourselves a better chance would you say it's fair to say he looks like a Jose Mourinho type player just to look at him um, I, I mean he could probably go in there alongside someone like Fellaini uh, I, I think As that a comedy midfield yeah you know? he's he now Fellaini's got rid of all his hair I think that that Phil Billings' hairstyle would probably fit quite nicely in there, although it would probably give someone like Graham Sunez just so much ammunition to slag off the likes of Paul Pogba and, and Phil Billing if they're in the same team, given the amount of dye that they've used on the hair in recent <laughs> times. He, he, he could be a really good player for Huddersfield, but I think that 
if a club was to come in for him in January, then it would be quite a short-sighted move. I'd probably want to see him across a full season in Premier League football. And, and at the moment, he's impressing. But at, at this stage, I think that a move up's probably too soon for him. It's worth saying, as good as Huddersfield were, Wolves were poor. And, you know, after the great start to the season, they look to just be slipping away a tad now. And they need to get themselves going again. They can't afford to be losing these types of games more than any, really. They certainly need to be beating the sides that they would expect to be below them. And I think, you know, from, from their perspective, when they're playing a 15th place Huddersfield Town, that's that's winnable for them. You know, they have to be picking up three points. And I think, you know, from, from their perspective, they just, as I say, they just need to get it going again. And, and I'm not sure whether that's personnel changes because they've generally kept the same team and or, or whether it's just they've been found out a little bit themselves and I, I'm not sure what it is but I think as you're coming up to that Christmas period you need to just get something just to get you going again and, and give you a little bit of a boost and, and just crack on with just at least maintaining where they were earlier on in the season with a, a steady defence and I, th- I think the lack of strikers probably what's going to be their downfall, to be honest. And I, th- I think the words crack on are probably quite relevant because most Wolves fans would have expected that to happen after the initial brilliant start that they had. I think that people were talking about Europe and, and I don't think that that was unfounded, really, given how impressive they looked in the early weeks. And now they find themselves down in 11th. They've got 16 points from... 13 games which is a brilliant return for any club coming into the Premier League but they will probably look on the last few results that they've had I think that they lost away at Brighton and then they've been beaten at home to Huddersfield and they would be the games that you would expect them to win given the early season form they looked so good when they held Manchester City at home they looked good away at Old Trafford as well and they're a team who really were going to be the surprise package of the season and like you said they've just lost a bit of momentum and Nuno just needs to, to to basically get get his team going again like you say I think the the amount of changes that they were able to to avoid making in the early weeks of the season made it possible for them to almost go into every game knowing exactly what players around them were going to do and now Johnny got injured a couple of weeks ago I think he's out for a long period of time they had they've had to make changes of late and that will start to destabilize them so it's how they cope with playing with different personnel throughout the, the, the remaining games between now and, and the time that they can strengthen in January. And Huddersfield with that win, second in three games, either side of a draw, moved themselves up to 15th. And still just two points between them and bottom place Fulham. It's looking more and more likely that they, the current kind of six, seven teams will be down there at the end of the season. And you know, it could be a right old ding-dong for the next six months or so, couldn't it? It could, yeah. We talked early on about the, the three-tiered division, didn't we? We said that there will likely be a runaway pack of, of six teams maybe seven teams at the top then there'll be your middle pack and then there will be a big divide between those middle teams and the teams at the bottom because you look at the quality on show and it, it's pretty evident for all to see one side who are trying to make a break from league three into the second division at the moment are Newcastle and they got their third win on the bounce with a plucky two on victory away at Burnley they did indeed and with a stroke of luck for the first goal as well after just four minutes with Ben Mee guiding it in and then a huge second goal from Kieran Clark. and then from there it's very much theirs to lose Sam Vokes pulled one back before half time Burnley created another few chances as well but it just it wasn't enough you know Newcastle were allowed to just dig in deep defending numbers and you know really they should have taken advantage of the space afforded to them by the Burnley defence shouldn't they and We've spent 46 seconds so far talking about this game and we've not got on to that miss from Matt Ritchie. So let's dedicate the next minute or so to it, shall we? <laughs> um, similar part of the pitch to Raheem Sterling's last year uh, against Burnley for Manchester City. And yeah, I, I think I don't even know whether it was an easier chance or not. But no, this one was worse. It, it, was, it was an easy chance. It was to the point where you just have to put something in front of the ball for it to go in. Yeah, and it was... <laughs> The goalkeeper was nowhere to be seen. It was probably a quarter of the goal was was available to him. Matt Ritchie's two-footed anyway. Yeah. Um, I think he thought he'd scored. I think he did as well, and he looked like he'd, he he actually had some technique to the effort as well, and I think he just thought, well, I've got this under control, and it couldn't have been further <laughs> from the truth because the Newcastle fans behind the goal also thought he'd scored yeah. because obviously you know the net ripples and you stood that far out you should be celebrating and I think it was probably only when they saw his reaction to 
utter embarrassment that they realised that they needed to keep quiet. Yeah, and it was quite nice to see the way that he dealt with it after the game. He was on the pitch and uh, he had a couple of hugs with, with, with the backroom staff and, and with Rafa and they were talking about it and you could see the embarrassment on his face and he will be the most relieved man at Turf yeah, Moor because if Burnley had come back into that and got a goal and they almost did towards the end, they were pushing and, and I think that on another day, a draw probably would have been a fair result and that's where you get punished for those mistakes. But I, I think we need to just have a little chat about Newcastle because they've won three on the bounce. We talked a lot about them early doors, about the fact that they'd struggled so much and they're, they're putting a bit of a run together and, and, and we just see how much of a difference that makes because they're in the bottom three early on in the season and, and now they're up to, I think, 13th or 14th yeah. in the league. And it just shows what can happen if you can put a few results together like that. I mean, in theory, Newcastle, who, who are level on points with West Ham now, should be looking for that that similar season to them really they should be going for the home wins and and trying to nick anything they can away from home and just avoiding being in that bottom pack I still think Newcastle have got um one of the worst squads in the league and I think they've got one of the best managers outside of the kind of top six seven eight and I think as a result of that they they've got some sort of combination that, that should be able to work somewhere down the line but I think they have to have that consistency as well. And three wins is huge for them. If they were to then go and lose the next kind of four or five games, then all that kind of hard work's massively undone. And that's the point where they'll find themselves being overtaken by the likes of Huddersfield, Palace and Burnley, who, you know, are three points behind them. And then obviously you've got the bottom three as well, who are only four points behind them. So it's still very close. They're still very much in it. And there's still a hell of a lot of hard work to be done at Newcastle. There is. We need to talk about Burnley before we move on. And they look poor. They look they shaky. Are struggling. They look they look poor at the back. They're still conceding bagfuls of chances and they're struggling to score goals. Chris Wood's not scored now for I think twelve games and two wins all season isn't good enough for a side who were challenging for a Champions League place at times last year. And I want to get your opinion on it because they're out of the Europa League, so they haven't got that to blame and they've still got the majority of the same personnel there. What's what's gone wrong at Burnley? I <sighs> I don't know. I mean, I, I think they overachieved last year in the end. I think that's probably one of the, the, the de- decisive factors because naturally you hold them up against how they got on last year. Um, and, you know, the fact that Sean Dyche is now having to come out and say, I understand why questions would be asked. And I think he could bat them away a little bit a few weeks ago, whereas now he's having to take that pressure on. And I just, like I said, like I've said over and over again, you know, they, the way they play, the way they concede chances eventually it's going to count against you and, and unless you change something then that you just you're on a hide into nothing every single time and I think as good as Joe Hart's looked this season he's still conceded a lot of goals and I wonder why Tom Heaton who's now fit is still just sat on the bench because they've had all their successful periods over the last few years with Tom Heaton there and he's able you know he has the relationship with the defenders is it something he can just do differently in terms of the organization at the back I would say, given Burnley's position, it's worth a try now. I think anything's worth a try. And ultimately, they don't have too many options other than having three good goalkeepers at the club. Well, that's that's it. And that's the problem that, that Sean Dyche is left with at the moment. He's He's got to try and understand which one of those goalkeepers is, is, is going to be the best one to, to take that team forward because they could make a massive difference. And I think you're right. I would probably give Joe Hart a bit of a rest and... You can you can very easily have that conversation. You've had the opportunity. The number one jersey's been yours all season, and and kind of look where by, it's got by us. Default as well. Yeah, but I mean, look where that's got us. I I don't necessarily think that that he's been terrible, but the buck has to stop with someone, and you can't drop a whole defence. No. The the likes of Tarkovsky, if he's getting picked for England, he must be doing something right. Ben Mee's a solid defender. Matt Loughton's a good fullback as well, and Charlie Daniels didn't look bad last night either. So. I I just I I think Burnley just need one game that, that that will see them get over it, and I thought they had that a few weeks ago when they beat Bournemouth four mm-hmm. one or yep. four nil, and you thought that was going to be the turning point in the season, but it just hasn't happened for them, and they will be looking to get that first win and just get that that monkey off their back and push further up the table because they strike me as the sort of side that the closer they get to relegation trouble, the harder it will be to get out of that funk. You look at the run that they went on last season. I think it was about 15 games without a victory. And if they do that at any stage this year, you would think that that would be the absolute nail in their coffin and they would go down. 
Absolutely, we're just one point behind them. Cardiff, who lost 1-0 to Everton at Goodison Park. And Everton were made to work extremely hard for this win. Cardiff were really challenging them and battling throughout, as, as you would expect them to. And, you know, they were trying to make the most of any advantages they could get. The goalkeeper was booked for time-wasting in the first half. And that just kind of typified how difficult it was going to be an afternoon for Everton. But they've got someone like Andre Gomez, who we've spoken about previously, who was fantastic. He ran the show and... As we said, he's so tidy and he moves the ball well and offers an outlet all the time. And I think to have someone like that with, you know, someone like Gilfie Sigurdsson next to them, eventually you're going to break teams down. You've got enough ability and enough and enough pace as well. You look at the likes of Theo Walcott with the goal. That was just purely from a, a scrappy bit of play from Cardiff and just having the, the opportunity to go and break against them. And ultimately, they were the better side. Much more of the ball, many more attempts against a well-drilled, hard-working defence. And I think, you know, Everton will be over the moon at the moment to just be getting wins and positive results on a regular basis. They will indeed. And you talked about Andre Gomez there. He reminds me so much of Mikel Arteta and the way that he yeah. used to run the show for Everton. He, he's not the quickest player in the world, but he's got an eye for a pass. He's he's very strong. He can he can defend well as well. And I, I think they've got a, a real star from Barcelona there. I know he's only on loan at the moment, but if I was an Everton well, if I was a, an Everton employee who was anything to do with transfers, I would be looking to get that one made permanent as soon as possible because he could be one for the future and that's the exciting thing from an Everton point of view at the moment they've got so many young players you look through that side you've got players like Pickford you've got Michael Keane who's not particularly old you've got Seamus Coleman you've got uh, Richarlison up top you've got Luckman who when he came on he did so well yeah. and they've got the real mix of, of experience and youth in that side Gilfie Sigurdsson looks so at home in an Everton shirt now which he really didn't do at times last season and Marco Silva must be over the moon with the way that things are going there. One thing to mention, though, Richarlison didn't score. He didn't score, and that puts us 3 to in front in the big charity bet with Eddie Lee. And to recap, we're looking to raise money for our friend, listener, and regular quizzer with us, Chris Platt, who's running the London Marathon for the Samaritans. That's right. Let's move on to Brighton-Leicester. And given the scoreline in this one, you might have expected it to be bereft of chances and not a huge amount of quality, but actually I think it was the complete opposite. Yeah, it was a great game, great low-scoring draw, and uh, as you say, you don't get the opportunity to say that very often, but game of two halves, Brighton having the better of the first, Leicester the second, plenty of chances, many of which seem to be from the undoing of each side's work, really, gifting each other the ball and ultimately the opportunities as well. I think the goal for Brighton was a great header from Glen Murray. 10th goal out of 14 scored by set pieces and you know what you get with Brighton you know they're hard working they do work very hard on the training ground they're very organized and I think as we've seen previously they take the lead at home they're going to be very very tough to beat yeah they remind me of Burnley from last season a little bit yeah I think that Chris Hewton has, has got that side so well drilled and one key thing from a Brighton point of view is that they didn't lose any of the players that did so well for them last summer so they've had a real level of consistency throughout the whole of the season so far they had pre-season working with the same players that they'd worked with previously the guys that they brought in in the summer haven't hit the ground running but they've got a good squad down there and I think that Chris Hewton will be happy to go under the radar and continue to stay in that division too if if, if we want to go back there and, and if he can stabilise that side and, and make them into a Premier League team who people fear going to play against then that's half of the battle because when teams come up from the championship you look forward to going to play them because you expect to to get something from them as an established Premier League side but Leicester went into this game and they were second best like you say in the first half and I think we need to have a quick chat about James Madison yeah absolutely at 1-0 down the last thing you want is to lose one of your creative players which is exactly what happened to them you know Madison two yellow cards in three minutes very very silly um glad he's come out and kind of admitted his mistake straight away as well rightly so and you know the last thing you want to get booked for for your second booking is a dive um but it was a dive it was the right decision by the referee and i would imagine he'll learn from that now and or you certainly hope he will um but for, for leicester you know the second half came and jamie vardy's arrival seemed to spark them into life and even at 10 at 10 men you know they they got back into the game by working hard playing the way they do and Although the goal came from a penalty, um, they they deserved it ultimately. And I think we have to talk about the penalty decision. Um, Ian Acho should have been called offside. Yep. And I'm surprised that didn't get caught up. 
the challenge was a foul. It yep. should have been a penalty. So it it's it's a difficult one either way. But I think you know Chris Hewton will be very very disappointed with that decision. And as much as it will be a frustrating thing for Brighton, they've scored late goals this season. They've probably got points at places that they didn't expect to. So sometimes you have to take it on the chin and take your medicine a little bit, realise that you've gone another game unbeaten against a side that will probably finish above you at the end of the season. And that has to be seen as a positive. Leicester will be probably the happier of the two sides after the game and yeah. they will take more confidence into tonight's game against Southampton but from a Brighton point of view they will be looking forward to playing anyone down at the Amex because generally they're as good if not better than them shall we talk about Manchester United very briefly yeah I mean we saved it to the end and for good reason because it was a nil-nil draw and it was devoid of quality there wasn't really a huge amount of chances in the game although Wayne Hennessy probably came out of it quite well Palace created chances and it it just kind of failed to really spark, didn't it, this game? And I don't particularly want to talk about the game too much. I think it's probably better to talk about the circumstances. Yeah, it, it's a shocker for Manchester United, let's face it. They have to be winning these games. Uh, not only just picking up three points, but playing well, scoring goals, keeping clean sheets. And to be honest with you, they just about did one of those things this weekend in keeping a clean sheet. And that was probably only because of Palace's lack of a striker. Um, they had a few very, very good opportunities at Crystal Palace. And I think on another day, one of those goes in. And, and I'm not sure Manchester United really created anything. Yeah, but um, both sides had a goal ruled out. Obviously, the Coyote header was a very good decision. Yeah. I, I think that for the linesman to get that right, and you don't know whether there's any guesswork that's gone in there, but when Coyote went over and spoke to him, he said, it's come back off your head. And, and that's that's massive. To be able to spot that from there is brilliant. And, and you have to give the... The, uh, the officials credit where it's due um, the Lukaku goal was offside yep. um, I, I think it was <laughs> it was quite amusing to see him go off and celebrate in that way but it just typified the game really didn't it those two goals the margins were tight and there wasn't a huge amount in them but at the end of the day I think that Crystal Palace will be much happier coming away from Old Trafford with a point than Manchester United will did you uh, did you get to see Marlon Fellaini's yeah, hair? Yeah after we spoke about it last week it, it's just really weird I just I think he looks ridiculous without a ridiculous haircut. It's just, it doesn't, I, I, I don't know. I just, I can't get my head around it because he's, he's just one of those almost comedy characters in the Premier League now as well. And as I say, he, he's almost more comedy now. He doesn't have that stupid hair. Do you reckon Jose told him to do it so that some of the uh, media focus would be away from Mourinho for the weekend? I would imagine he probably just did it himself. Do you think Chris Smalling might come out with a skinhead this week? I saw David De Gea got rid of his hair as well. What's going on at United? Chris Smalling should be worrying about more than his hair at the minute, I think. <laughs> um, Manchester United are away at Southampton this week, aren't they? Yeah, and, um, that they will... bounce back. Yeah, of course they will. <laughs> yeah, um, We won't ever beat Manchester United again the way it's going. But I think this is the perfect game for, Mar for Mourinho. They'll go there, they'll be able to play their expansive football. And even if they don't get out of second gear, they will win easily. And, and they've just got more physical players they've got more uh, skillful players and I think that it's one of these games where you just see the the better quality side will come through and let's just talk really quickly before we get to the quiz but the global sports salary survey came out this week and Manchester United players earn more than anyone else in the Premier League almost double what Tottenham are playing their players and you look at what Pochettino is able to get out of the players at Tottenham and what Mourinho is able to get out of the players at Manchester United and you just wonder where those sides would be if the roles were reversed, it, it's just it's absolute madness. And I understand that Manchester United have that money to be able to do that, but you this performance typified everything that's wrong with Manchester United. Ultimately, they've got they they've got these quality players. They're paying all this money and they're not getting anywhere. And huge huge questions from very very top to bottom need to be asked at that club because, as you say, someone like Spurs, they're reinvesting a load of money in basically having to pay for a ground twice now um, and they're still managing to, to, to sign very very good players, bring players through their own academies as well and probably this season finish above Manchester United as well it's it, it, it's shocking really I think as I say big questions need to be asked from top to bottom That's right, it's the battle of the managerial sackings on Saturday at St Mary's but that's it for the Premier League we're done for the Championship and we've been to Portugal which leaves us with one thing to do after the break and that is this week's quiz <laughs> Guilty feeling, I've got no real 
Welcome back to the final part of this week's Sweeper podcast. And before we get to the quiz, Mitch is in the hot seat. I'm asking them the questions. He's going to tell you how you can get in contact with us. Yes, you can get us on Twitter at the Sweeper Pod, Instagram, Facebook, the Sweeper Podcast, and you can email us at the Sweeper Podcast at gmail.com. And as ever, get on iTunes, get rating, reviewing, and subscribing. They are the most important things, and it would mean a hell of a lot if you could do that for us. And you can get us on YouTube, and you can get us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Audio Boom, Anchor, basically anywhere that does podcasts, we are on there. We are indeed. Keep your eyes on our social media channels as well this week, because we will be putting out a few clips which will involve the podcast and some of our new illustrations that were done for us by Toby Triumph. Now, Mitch, it's time for the quiz. Quick update on the scores. It's not good. You are 15-10 ahead at the minute, and this is my one game in hand. So, really, I need to get five out of five, which has never happened before. So, it's going to be an interesting one. Okay, so we're going to start with your 50-50. Get a bit of confidence up, and then that will show you the way for the rest of the quiz. I don't think I've got 50-50 right all season. (laughs) I think I've I've even shown my workings and then still got it wrong. Right, so S is for Spurs. Yeah. Who has scored more goals for Tottenham, Deli Ali or Hung Min Son? I will go with Son. Deli Ali. It's a good start. Deli Ali's got 39 for Tottenham and Son has got 31. Good. M is for Manchester City, who have hit the woodwork nine times this season. That's the most in the Premier League, but they are level with one other side. Who is it? Have a little think. You rushed into that first question. I did. So, so it's either going to be someone who's not doing very well because they keep hitting the post, or it's going to be someone who's had a lot of shots. I will go with. Uh, I'll go with the latter. I'm just going to go with Liverpool. It's not Liverpool. It's Huddersfield Town. Really? It is indeed. Yeah. So, S is for saves. It's a very stat-based quiz this week. Who has the most in the Premier League so far this season? Which goalkeeper has the most saves in the Premier League this season? Uh, great question. One that I've literally got no idea about. Um, mainly because he generally always does have a lot of saves. Oh, is it actually? It's either going to be Joe Hart because the amount of shots they let through or they've conceded a lot of goals or Lucas Fabianski because he's always done saves so I'll go with Fabianski it's Joe Hart <laughs> I don't so know why you do it to yourself you talk yourself time. out of points every time and this question is all about the aforementioned Joe Hart J is for Joe Hart which current Premier League goalkeeper did he unseat from the number one spot at Manchester City at the start of the 2007-2008 season. So Joe Hart went out on loan from Manchester City. I think he went to Birmingham mm. and uh, somewhere else. And then he came back and at the start of the season, there was a goalkeeper there who is now playing in the Premier League for another side. And Joe Hart unseated him to become the number one at the Etihad. Okay, this could take some time. That's all right. I can fill for a little bit longer. Joe Hart has played for Torino. He's also played for Manchester City and Shrewsbury in his career. He's uh, not got as much hair as he did a few years ago. He made a lot of England appearances. And the reason I found this out, the reason that Manchester City decided to sign Joe Hart was on a personal recommendation from their goalkeeping coach at the time, ex-Blackburn and Southampton legend Tim Flowers. And that's about as much as I know about Joe. So I'm going to have to ask you for an answer. And that's great. I listened to all of that without thinking about the answer. So it's really interesting to know about Joe Hart. Um, I'm really struggling because I just every team I think of hasn't got a goalkeeper that played for Manchester City. Um, I'm yeah, I'm really struggling. Um, to the point where I'm, I can't even give an answer because I just. 
because I can't even think of anyone that played for Manchester City. Would you like to move on to the final question and then we can come back to this one? At the at the risk of potentially getting a point then, yeah. Let's do it. So, your last question. H is for Hector Bellerin, one of the Premier League's only vegans. Which other English side has Hector Bellerin played for during his career? I'll give you a clue on this one. He made eight appearances on loan in the 2013-2014 season. So it wasn't even that long ago. Again, not one that I know. Uh, I To the point where I, I genuinely have no idea, so I'm just going to go with Barnet. <laughs> it wasn't Barnet. It's a good <laughs> guess. Um, the answer is Watford. Oh, right. Okay. So we'll go back to the Joe Hart question. J is for Joe Hart. Which current Premier League goalkeeper did he unseat from the number one spot at Manchester City at the start of the 2007-2008 season. Yeah, and I still can't think of anything, so I'm just going to have to pass because it's pointless. He's passing. The answer is Kasper Schmeichel. Right, of course it is. Who was at Manchester City at the time, along with Joe Hart and Andreas Isaacson. And that's it for this week's quiz. Um, We don't need to talk about anything else. We were going to talk about Fantasy Premier League, and then we realised that there's a game this Friday... Cardiff are taking on Wolves in what will be an absolute cracker. And Aston Villa have got, like you said, Nottingham Forest live on Sky on Wednesday. Then is it Middlesbrough or West Ham? Uh, sorry, Middlesbrough or West Brom this weekend. Middlesbrough Saturday night, so I won't be watching your game. You won't be watching my game. That's very true. In fact, I might not watch our game. I think <laughs> I might just try and take myself away from uh, from football for the weekend because every time I go and watch Southampton, we, we lose. And I can't really see anything else but that happening tonight. Good luck. Thank you very much. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us and we look forward to speaking to you next week. Mitch is going to go and dine out on more clips of Alan Hutton online. I'm going to go and get my car and drive to the King Power Stadium and uh, have a great week, everybody. Scottish Cafe. Have some of that.